Welcome to the Bagwell Center podcast. This podcast features lectures and symposia hosted by the Bagwell Center for the Study of Markets and Economic Opportunity at Kennesaw State University. The Bagwell Center's mission is to provide a platform for an interdisciplinary study of the importance of markets and economic institutions in regard to resource allocation, entrepreneurial activity, economic prosperity, and improved human welfare. Through extracurricular outreach activities such as guest lectures, film screenings, workshops, fellowships, and reading groups, the Bagwell Center places an emphasis on educating students about the foundations of market institutions and examining the related impact of government policy in a mixed economy. For more information about the Bagwell Center and its programs, please visit coles.kennesaw.edu slash econop. Professor of Political Science at Duke University, uh, Dr. Munger's primary research focus is on the functioning of markets, regulation, and government institutions. He has a BA in economics from Davidson College and an MA and PhD from Washington University in St. Louis. In addition to previous faculty positions at Dartmouth College, University of Texas, and University of North Carolina, he worked as a staff economist at the Federal Trade Commission during the Reagan administration. He's a past president of the Public Choice Society, previously served as North American editor of the journal Public Choice, and is currently co-editor of the Independent Review. He's published over 200 articles and papers in professional and academic journals, including prestigious outlets such as American Political Science Review, Journal of Economic Behavior and Organization, Economic Inquiry, and Public Choice. His lecture right now uh, is Breaking Up is Hard to Do, Lessons from the Strange Case of New Zealand. So welcome, Dr. Thank you. Thanks very much. Well, I appreciate it. I should explain the outburst. Uh, he was kind enough not to mention the fact that I also ran as a third-party candidate in the 2008 governor's election in North Carolina. And I learned that if you run as a third-party candidate, the only way to get applause is to lead them yourself. So thank you for going along with that. So I, I, my goal is to get the person to throw their papers up in the air. It didn't quite happen, but it was close. So. The paper that I am going to talk about today, and I'm happy to talk about other things if you guys have questions, so I'm going to go over quite a bit pretty quickly, and you would be doing me and the people around you a favor if you interrupt and say, I don't understand that. Can you please explain that? Because you're thinking, I'm the only one that doesn't understand. That's not true. You can be a hero because everyone else doesn't understand it too. The reason you don't understand it is that it doesn't make any sense. So I'm asking for some heroes. So <clears throat> let me explain something. And those of you who have had an economics class will know this, but it's either a reminder or you'll hear it for the first time. Adam Smith, in chapter three of book one of The Wealth of Nations, had the chapter title that's actually almost a theorem. It's as if he's stating a theorem. And what he says is that the division of labor is limited by the extent of the market that the division of labor is limited by the extent of the market. Now, what he means by that is that the degree to which people can cooperate each other in increasing wealth is going to be determined by the size of the cooperation horizon. That is, how many people are able to cooperate. So economists call this a nonlinearity or increasing returns to scale. What does that mean? Well, it means that if four of us are all producing stuff just for ourselves, Let's suppose the two things we need are food and clothing. If all of us make all our own food and all our own clothing, 
we can't make very much. But if the four of us split up and two concentrate on making only food and two concentrate on making only clothing, we'll end up with a lot more food and clothing as a result. So this goes by various names, specialization, division of labor, where you divide up different tasks. But when you think about it, if you practice one thing, you get a lot better at that. Now, I was a terrible athlete. I was bad at everything. But I was relatively better at baseball because I practiced that quite a bit. If I had said I'm going to practice equally on everything, I really would have been awful. As it was, I was able to play baseball in high school. So most people specialize to some degree. And by specializing, you're better at that thing. Somebody else is better at another thing. And you can exchange. Now, notice that, that what I just said about division of labor, about specialization and cooperation, that's completely uncontroversial. Karl Marx agreed. Adam Smith laid that out as a way that where wealth comes from. All net increases in wealth since the beginning of time have come from increasing division of labor. All net increases in wealth since the beginning of time have come from division of labor. Now, it's true that sometimes people through colonialism, slavery, they've stolen stuff. So some concentrations of wealth among individuals come from theft. That's true. But the net increases in wealth, where I get better off and you get better off, always come from division of labor. So this raises a question. How big should nations be? How big should nations be? And one of the questions you'll probably want to know is, all right, what is this thing you call a nation? Well, a nation, in some ways, is a union that identifies itself as being part of the same polity. It may be a group of people who share the same currency. Maybe they share the same language. So we're seeing that there's a wide variety of types of unions which might be a larger name for nation, ranging from trade or currency collectives to confederations, which is a group of independent nations, to federations to unified nations. So the US, before 1860, in official documents, the United States referred to itself as these United States, plural. After 1865, and what we from the South call the late unpleasantness, the US referred to itself as this United States, singular. That is, the nation was singular. So the Soviet Union broke up before y'all were born. But the Soviet Union was a nation, and it broke up. Now it appears that Russia is trying to reestablish what it sees as its territorial claims to Ukraine. How would you decide if those claims are legitimate or not? China is making claims about Taiwan and Hong Kong. U.S. claims Puerto Rico. <clears throat> Scotland and Northern Ireland may leave the U.K. Catalonia and Navarra may, the Basque Republic might leave Spain. Ethiopia and the Tigray Aromia nations. One of the problems with African nations is that they were often put together by colonialists in order to make sure that warring tribes were in the same nation. So those those boundaries don't really make much sense. 
because it, it was intentionally, you didn't want a single tribe within a nation because they might rise up and revolt, but this way you could split the two nations. Um, North California and Greater Idaho, uh, there's a movement to make Greater Idaho. There's probably a move for South Georgia to uh, leave Atlanta. Indonesia and Aceh, Israel and the Palestinian state, should those be separate states? Chile and Araucania, which is the southern part, the uh, indigenous part where the Mapuche live, should that really be a nation? On the other hand, there are moves towards union. The European Union is really a confederation. The European Union is a confederation of nations. So how unified is the European Union? What do they share? They share a currency, for the most part, not all. They do, they share a currency. They, if you're a citizen of the European Union, you can move to another part of the European Union and live. So there's labor mobility, there's migration of people. There are a number of differences, though, where the languages within the European Union are all quite different. So to what degree should nations unify? Now, the argument that I made at the beginning was that division of labor wants to be big. You'll be more wealthy, you'll have more prosperity, and it'll be more widely shared if it's big. However, big may mean that you have groups of people that don't really agree with each other in the same place. So one of the most recent big events of a peaceful departure was Brexit, where the United Kingdom left the European Union. They did that after a plebiscite, a vote. And the people who were leading the UK, who called for the plebiscite, had not expected that Brexit would win. So one of the problems in letting voters choose whether to exit the EU was having some reasonable predictions of the likely consequences. So we wrote this paper a little, bit, a little while ago and then revised it a few times. We actually wrote it for the first time before Brexit happened, thinking that it might matter as a forecast. And then as often happens with academic papers, it wasn't published until two years after Brexit actually occurred. So uh, we, we came to pretend, no, we intended that all along. We knew that was going to happen. So some of the forecasts were ridiculously up, uh, optimistic that as soon as England leaves the UK, its GDP is going to increase in an enormous, by enormous amount. And the reason was it was going to create a bunch of new jobs. That is, it would be much harder to import from Europe, what remained of Europe, and it would create a lot of new jobs. However, there, the England is and always has been a export-oriented economy, or at least a trade-oriented economy, and London, the part of London that they call the city, which is England's Wall Street, the big financial center, actually depended on being part of the EU to be able to engage in financial transactions with a lot of additional bureaucratic problems. So it was an open question whether Brexit was going to be good or not. Now, to be fair, You'll probably notice, because you are old enough for this, a bunch of stuff happened. There was a global pandemic starting in 2020. It's hard to know if you know, we can conflate that and say, well, Brexit's been really bad. Maybe it was COVID. 
So there's a bunch of other problems that have happened. But England, their GDP has been just plummeting. There's, it's been a, a, an economic disaster. So the, the, the following statement is true. The years following Brexit have been economically disastrous for the UK. Whether that's causal is hard to say. So what we wanted, I, I have heard people say that economists really aren't that good at prediction. Mostly economists are good at predicting the past and the recent past we're great at. We can predict yesterday with great accuracy. And so you'll often see this on the news where someone, uh, you know, the stock market goes down 300 points and they'll call an economist and say why that happened. And we're clever monkeys. I can come up with a bunch of reasons why that happened. If it had gone up, I could come up with a bunch of reasons why that happened. None of them have anything to do with what happened. But so explaining the recent past is something that economists do. Making forecasts of the likely effects of the future is what we'd like to be able to do. The best solution would be to wait 10 years. But of course, that's not very useful as a forecast. So Kevin Greer and I used a, a method of comparison called synthetic control. Uh, it, in some ways, it's similar. The, on a case that is in some way similar, I should say. So <clears throat> synthetic control allows you to create a statistical counterfactual. Synthetic control allows you to create a statistical counterfactual and then say, well, we actually know what happened after Brexit, what would have happened if Brexit had not occurred. So what, what, what we looked at was New Zealand. And it's a little complicated to explain, but the simple thing is that New Zealand used to be part of a union that's a bit like the European Union. It was called the Commonwealth of Nations. And it was basically the nations that had been part of the British Empire. But being an economic part of the British Empire was actually a big benefit because you could exchange with the metropole. You could engage in transactions at preferential tariff rates. England had pretty high tariffs. They had a lot of trade barriers. But if you were part of the Commonwealth of Nations, you could participate that without having to pay those tariffs. So, New Zealand had been part of the Commonwealth of Nations. However, the UK, before Brexit, had engaged in Brentree. No economist jokes are funny, I understand that. So they had engaged in Brentree, and Brentree was when the UK had entered the European Union. And so the European Economic Union had been just an economic union. It hadn't been a currency union, but the, the reduced tariffs to be part of the European Economic Union had been important. So when the UK entered the European Economic Union, that meant that New Zealand was kicked out. So you can see where I'm going. New Zealand leaving the Commonwealth is a bit like the UK leaving the European Union. New Zealand is an English-speaking island nation that depends mostly on trade. If we can construct a statistical counterfactual, we can look to see what would have happened New Zealand to New Zealand if they had not exited the Commonwealth. So we're going to use Brentree to consider the counterfactual. What's the difference in the growth path and prosperity for New Zealand comparing actual events to what if New Zealand had not left the Commonwealth? 
So our findings are, compared to the synthetic control, New Zealand suffered a 20% decline in real GDP per capita. And they never made up the gap. Liberal reforms in the 1980s did restore the slope of growth to its previous trend level, but they never made up the difference. And interestingly, and this is, some of you likely know more about New Zealand than I do, because this is the year of New Zealand here at Kennesaw State. So the, the surprising thing is that a lot of the economic policies that appeared to be central planning came from a conservative government. And they were so bad, they were so catastrophic in response to New Zealand being kicked out of the Commonwealth that a liberal leftist government in 1983 and 1984 implemented a bunch of liberal reforms. And by liberal, I mean in the European sense, there were economically liberal. There was there resulted in economic liberalization. So, this may come down to something that's sometimes said about the United States. So a lot of people look back with a kind of nostalgia on the Articles of Confederation. But the Articles of Confederation were a really bad constitution. The US's first constitution was the Articles of Confederation. It was so bad that it made it possible for a really radical change. Now, a bunch of other changes would have been possible, but people thought that the Articles of Confederation constrained change to unanimous choice, and so they thought they would be safe not sending delegates. No, they were not. So the result was the wind set, the set of alternatives that were preferred to the Articles of Confederation was very large. And the US, rightly or wrongly, chose what we now have as the Constitution, which was a radical change. New Zealand was in such bad trouble as a result of the ham-handed response to Brentree, which basically was news exit, I guess, the, the exit of New Zealand from the Commonwealth. The, the economic policies were so ham-handed that the windset, the set of alternatives that you could get through were enormous. And so there was, the usual story is, the New Zealand economic miracle was a result of liberal reforms. And ideologically, I'd like to believe that true. We don't really find that that's the case. It was not magic. It, what it did was restore New Zealand to the growth path that it would have had otherwise. So that's what we're going to do. Admittedly, the comparison's not perfect. In fact, in some ways, the comparison is awkward. Both of these are English-speaking island nations that are heavily dependent on trade. But the UK is much less isolated. The, uh, New Zealand is pretty much in the middle of nowhere. Further, both the economy and the population of the UK are far larger than that of New Zealand, which makes it possible, at least, that the UK could realize some of the benefits of division of labor just within its own borders. Now, the United States probably can. China certainly could. If, the, if it's large enough, there's a lot of division of labor you can achieve just within your own borders. And I think that may have been what the, the argument that was being made for the UK. However, the thing that makes the comparison better, more plausible, is that England really, really did have a lot of integration with the European Union. And so ending their ability to have imports that were cheap and exports that they could sell without tariffs had more of an effect than many people in the UK expected. 
So, a brief history of Aotearoa, which is the Maori name of New Zealand, and that means land of the long white cloud. So, the actual owners of New Zealand arrived between 1200 and 1300, and they became what the, the people we now call Maori. 1642, Abel Tasman, after whom Tasmania was named, saw at least the South Island, and it appears on Dutch maps as New Zealand, which is where the current name comes from. Captain Cook visited a couple of times, 16, 1769, 73, 77. 1815, the first British missionaries arrive. 1840, there's a treaty between the British and several Maori tribes that pledged the protection of Maori land and established British law in New Zealand. They did the second of those, not the first. They ignored their pledges to uh, protect Maori land. As a consequence, between 1845 and 1872, there were the land wars, where the Maori resisted British colonial rule. There weren't that many British, and the Maori were absolutely fierce warriors, so that was pretty tough. <clears throat> 1893, New Zealand becomes the world's first country to give women the vote. In the US, Montana became the first US state to give women the vote. Why do you think that might have been? There were no women. They're hoping some women will show up. I've, I, I'm going to go live really far away from everybody because, damn, I can vote, said no one ever. But maybe it was a whole package of things. You know, maybe there were, you hope there were some other things. But the, the, if you look at the debates, it was pretty explicit. This was not a set of people who were economically progressive. Uh, they were hoping to increase the female population. 1898, the government introduced old age pensions for some of the same reason, to try to increase the population. It becomes a dominion within the British Empire in 1907. Now, before that, it had been a colony. The difference between a colony and dominion is that a dominion has some powers of self-governance rather than just having a governor who's appointed by the crown. And they have the ability to engage in economic exchange. So it's still a colony, but it's a much nicer name. 1914, uh, New Zealand sends troops to the British war effort. Many of them were killed in the Gallipoli campaign in Turkey, which was mismanaged actually by Winston, Winston Churchill. 1935 to 45, they fought in World War II. 1947, New Zealand gained full independence from Britain, but it remained part of the Commonwealth. So again, there's this complicated dance where it, it's a separate country and it's self-governing, but they still recognized the authority of the queen. And they still had to get the permission of the queen to name a prime minister. And they had privileged trade status with the other nations of the Commonwealth. Well, more wars, they keep sending combat forces. And then 1984, the labor government was elected. And at this point, uh, David Lang begins radical free market economic reforms. So I intentionally skipped the event that actually matters for our analysis, and that is 1973 and 1974, we see Brentree. We see the entry of the UK into the European Union. 
And that meant that the Commonwealth was effectively dissolved because the UK could no longer enforce two separate sets of import restrictions. So this is real GDP, and by real I mean constant 2020 US dollars over time um, for New Zealand. And starting in 1960, it's pretty flat. Here is Brentree. And it actually declines a little bit. It starts to go up a little bit in the late 1980s, but it's very flat. And a lot of this is actually misleading. So some of you have had a macroeconomics class. How do we define GDP? One more time. But the, the, it's usually the, product, the sum of three or four different things. So the, it's, it's all the sales, all the economic activity, but often the way we define it in macroeconomics is that it's the sum of consumption plus investment plus government spending, C plus I plus G. This was all G. So their GDP didn't really go down, but that's because the government was spending all of its foreign reserves in a desperate attempt to try to preserve jobs. Well, if the government is spending money to try to preserve jobs so people can pay taxes, how's that gonna turn out? Not too good, and it didn't turn out too good. So this doesn't look like a disaster, but by 1984, it was recognized that it was a disaster. And liberalization almost immediately kicked the economy into relatively permanent high gear. So that's the usual story and like I said at the beginning, I sort of wish it were true, but it's not exactly true. Uh, they're, they're, they don't really regain all of the uh, growth that they had lost. So New Zealand was named a self-ruling dominion, but it remained tightly tied to the UK through the Commonwealth. But declining UK military power after World War I and the rise of ENSUS, so ENSYS is a military alliance of Australia, New Zealand, and the United States. It meant that there was no longer any dependence or even much value to belong to the Commonwealth as a military alliance. So still, the UK paid a premium for uh, imports from New Zealand. There was a worry, though, in the UK that population increases and a world food crisis might leave the UK starving. And in fact, there were a couple of predictions. Um, the, the guy who wrote the, the population bomb, in fact, the, in the book, The Population Bomb, he said, I predict that the UK will cease to exist by 2000. It won't be able to feed itself. And we, actually, he was on CNN just the other day. The guy is an idiot. The, 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 the population has increased dramatically since that period, but there, there were genuine worries that the UK was not going to be able to feed itself. Uh, it, was, it took too long to get food from New Zealand, and also they were worried about the power of the Soviet Union, so the UK wanted to tie itself much more closely to Europe. And until the breakup of the uh, Commonwealth, there had been very favorable tariff treatments. 
So the result had been long-term contracts negotiated at above world prices for many commodities. So lamb, wool, a number of uh, like grain. So the UK was paying more than it would have had to pay in world markets in order to assure itself of sources of food because they were worried that the Soviet Union might impose a blockade. Fair enough, there was national security. So those long-term contracts at above world prices made New Zealand very complacent because they thought, you know, we're, we're making a lot of extra money here. We've got a sugar daddy up there off the coast of Europe and we're going to be, we're in good shape. We don't need to innovate. We'll just sell these agricultural products. So by the late 1960s, it became, became clear that the UK was going to join the European Economic Community. However, what New Zealand did was respond with what's called an import substitution policy. Import substitution means that they're going to try to realize the benefits of division of labor within their own boundaries. That is, they're going to make stuff instead of import it. They're not big enough for that to work. Really, no country that has tried import substitution has done very well. But all the small countries that have tried import substitution, it's been a disaster. They also made a political guarantee for full employment. So the emphasis on full employment and bankrolling exports. So they're subsidizing exports. They're using foreign currency reserves to buy down the price of exports so that they can be exported, so that they can get foreign currency. Well, of course it sounds bad when you say it that way, but that's the only way to say it. That's actually the only way to say it. That's what they were doing. <clears throat> so the emphasis on full employment and bankrolling exports required an explicit cross-subsidization of jobs through much higher domestic prices. So the only way for them to finance this was an implicit tax of having much higher domestic prices. So they were trying to manage export prices by subsidizing them, and they financed that by increasing domestic prices. But there weren't enough people to be able to buy stuff, and they didn't really have income. So they tried to subsidize their income. There's this cascading sequence of new, regula new regulations. They tried to subsidize income. Well, there has to be some source of value creation here for you to be able to use that to cross-subsidize something else. You can't cross-subsidize everything. So those policies, combined with clumsy, clumsy attempts at industrial policy, created a, a zombie economy that generated jobs while producing little value added or domestic consumption. So what you said, ma'am, about GDP was right. This is total sales, but it's, it's a bunch of people selling stuff to each other at artificially inflated prices. There's no increase in value going on because it was C plus I plus G, but it was all G. <clears throat> so New Zealand quickly burned through its foreign exchange reserves. The conservative National Party, led by Robert Muldoon, inherited a mess, admittedly, in 1975, he comes in, there's a mess. So Brentree had pushed New Zealand out of the Commonwealth. By 1973, GDP was falling. The OPEC oil shock, the first oil shock, was disruptive. It's interesting that Muldoon, as a conservative, did the same thing that Richard Nixon, as a conservative, did. He imposed wage and price controls. The last thing you expect a conservative government to do is impose wage and price controls. So we're having a problem with inflation and prices going up. 
One thing you could do is try to reform it so it's possible to produce more. But instead, they just said, we're going to prevent prices from going up. We're going we're to keep raising wages, but we're going to prevent prices from going up. So steel, chemical manufacturing, and oil refining, they decided to become self-sufficient. Now, if a leftist government had done those things, there would have been shrieking about socialism. This is socialism. We can't do this. That's not what happened. It was a conservative government, just like with Nixon. Oh, Nixon, it's okay. It's not okay. None of those were successful. So over Muldoon's decade in office, real GDP growth averaged 1.25%, and most of those were increases in government. So the only way to sell the products being produced by subsidized labor was to subsidize prices. So a strategy designed to improve the balance of payments had precisely the opposite effect as scarce foreign currency was diverted to make products that were supposed to substitute for imports. So things had gotten so statically, dynamically, economically, and dangerous politically that when the labor government took over in 1984, uh, Prime Minister David Lang, who was a labor uh, representative, went full-on liberal. Now, if a conservative government had done this, people would have said, fascism, this is Milton Friedman. But it was a labor government that did it, so it was okay. So all of this is just through the looking glass. So Roger Douglas, and the reforms were therefore called Rogernomics, had a kind of sense of urgency that where the, the New Zealand dollar was legally pegged to the US dollar and they went to floating exchange rates, a sharp degree of privatization of state-owned enterprises, reductions in tariffs and quotas, and the near elimination of import licensing. Still, real GDP was lower in 1992 than it had been in 1986. After 1992, though, New Zealand did begin a period of sustained growth. Well, I promised at the beginning that I was going to talk about synthetic control. And synthetic control creates a weighted average of the statistical performance of other nations to try to use it as a counterfactual. So the question we want to ask is, what would have happened to New Zealand if they had remained in the Commonwealth of Nations? You can say, well, that's impossible. The, the Commonwealth was dissolving. Right. But let's suppose that it, that it wasn't true. This is a counterfactual. It's one of the cool things about synthetic control is you can say, what if something other had happened? Because usually when you speculate about the effects of something, you're comparing it to some imaginary counterfactual. Well, we're comparing it to an imaginary statistical counterfactual, which is much better. As I said, economics jokes are not funny. I get that. So the, we, there's two groups of countries. So we, we chose a group of countries that were potential candidates. And then you let the computer program, the synthetic control package, choose the countries that are most like the country you want to mimic. And perhaps unsurprisingly, it was most like the UK, which isn't actually very helpful. So we eliminate the UK, and it's most like the US with substantial similarities to Mexico and Australia. So those are the synthetic control. And then we do it again after the 1984 reforms to say, what if the reforms had not happened? And here's the payoff. So <clears throat> dotted line is synthetic New Zealand. That's what New Zealand would have done in terms of real per capita uh, GDP. 
in following Brentry, if there had been the following the year of Brentry, if there had been no Brentry compared to what actually happened in New Zealand. So if we use the synthetic control technique, what we find is that New Zealand paid a pretty large price in terms of GDP growth foregone as a result of the dissolution of the Commonwealth. Now, you could say part of that was dumb policies, but they were thrashing around trying to find a way to solve a really severe economic problem. And then this is the comparison of New Zealand and synthetic New Zealand after the imposition of the liberal reforms. And it's true that there was growth, but then there was a pretty big problem, and then we get back to trend growth. So in words, what I'm saying is that there's a usual story that that black line, actual New Zealand following the reforms, was a miracle. And they, because of the liberal reforms, they actually ended up doing better than they ever would have. Well, it doesn't actually seem to be true. As much as I would like for, ideologically, I want that to be true. That's what I wanted. One of the problems with trying to do careful econometrics is that sometimes things you want to be true turn out not to be true. It was important. It appears that it did, it, it's pretty flat, and then it does, you do get an upturn. But it's not exactly a miracle. So our findings, The, the argument for free trade is unilateral, which means that we see a lot of bilateral trade agreements proliferating. There's a lot of concern about trade-offs between trade and goods. So, well, let me just go back to this, because I, I would rather stop and just have questions. And so in, in words, what we found was that it seems that to the extent that you accept our analogy, that the New Zealand being kicked out of the European, the Commonwealth of Nations is something like the UK leaving the European Union. The likely effects are substantially harmful. The UK is going to be punished for leaving this trade union. Now, the other thing that we found, and it was just a, a bonus, the other thing that we found was that the story about the New Zealand economic miracle as a result of the liberal reforms, there's something there. It was better than their previous policies. But it wasn't actually a magic bullet that restored all of the lack of growth. Uh, New Zealand did pay a permanent penalty for its lost decade. So thank you, and it's time for questions. You can just clap because you're glad it's over. Thank you for listening to the Bagwell Center podcast. For more content like this, please be sure to subscribe. And for more information about the Bagwell Center and its programs, please visit us online at coles.kennesaw.edu econop.